0: podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. more the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash-like morons and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed, there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're at.
1: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, wait. Yeah, Stuart, we're starting. We are, we okay. are officially recording. You are on air. And uh, how's it going, buddy?
0: That's, it's okay.
1: <laughs> um, I don't want to delve into that. Let's just, I'm just going to blow by it. Paul, how you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> We've got some great friends. <laughs> the yeah. sadder Stuart is the happier I am. So I feel like this is going to be an excellent <laughs> night for me.
0: And
1: with us is uh, the Chew Man. Hey, what's up? Chris? Thanks you're going to be kind of running the show here tonight. This is our second journal club episode. This is for May two thousand and eighteen with some recent articles that we'll be going through and uh I'll kind of let you take it from here, Chris. If you want to remind people since a lot we probably have a lot of new people joining if they want if you want to just kind of lay out what the format is of this kind of
3: show Today is our monthly edition of the curbsider journal Club um. Where we bring you the news that we find most interesting. This list that we have that we're going to talk about was called here by the Curbsider team, as well as um, some of our listeners that gave us great suggestions on Facebook and Twitter. The first part of the show includes our main review. We call these our hot cakes. Um, basically, we want to bring this knowledge food to your brain hole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. We and uh, <laughs> just to and, be 100%
2: uh, clear, I did not sign off on this whole hot cake <laughs> thing. I'm just putting that out there publicly.
3: And, uh, well, usually we'll have one to three reviews. This time we actually we do have three. Um, uh, we'll do sort of a pseudo deep dive on the subject, um, and sort of give our, whether we feel this is practice changing or not. The second part of the episode, um, uh, will sort of be just sort of some really hot takes on some of the more interesting, uh, news articles and journals that we thought, that we found from the month. So the theme of our hotcakes or our main reviews today is um, hypertension, because that's something um, all of us internists really like to talk about. So the first one, I think Matt's going to talk about ambulatory monitoring. Right.
1: Yeah. This was from April 2018, New England Journal of Medicine. The author was Benegas et al. And uh, this is data from a Spanish ambulatory blood pressure registry. I thought it was a really interesting article. They they looked at, uh, so first of all, there was around 64,000 patients, mean age of 58 years old. 40% of the patients in this trial, at least at the start of the trial, were not on blood pressure beds, and they followed him for a median of 4.7 years. And during the trial, there was about 6% uh, death rate, so about 3,800 people died during the trial, 1,300 of which was from cardiovascular cause. And they looked at... Uh, Clinic blood pressure, so clinic blood pressure was elevated if it was higher than 140 over 90, and also ambulatory blood pressure, so ambulatory blood pressure elevated if it was higher than 130 over 80. And just to define the terms here, white coat hypertension was if the clinic blood pressure was higher than 140 over 90, but when they did the ambulatory study, it was less than 130 over 80. Masked hypertension was the opposite of that, so it was not elevated in clinic, but at home, their blood pressure was higher than one thirty over eighty, and then sustained hypertension is just they were just hypertensive everywhere. And hmm. the they they did it sounds like they did actually do a decent job measuring the clinic blood pressure. The patients were resting for five minutes. They they took at least two, and then they took the average of those two readings. And uh, the, the they basically found that. Uh, blood pressure medications work, so patients who were on blood pressure medicine in this trial had lower mortality in general, even if their blood pressure was not "quote unquote" controlled. Uh, meaning, like if if their blood pressure in clinic was still higher than one hundred forty over ninety, as long as they were on a blood pressure medicine, it was it was uh, still had a mortality benefit. So what I was surprised at from this was that white coat hypertension regardless of uh, yeah white coat hypertension actually had a mortality increased mortality risk the hazard ratio was about 1.8 now if that patient was on a blood pressure medicine that was it was no longer significant but to me your your patients with white coat hypertension it had not been my practice to treat patients with white coat hypertension but this study is suggesting that you should because when you put those patients on meds that mortality, that they saw, increase that they saw went away. And uh, masked hypertension is where they actually saw the highest increase in mortality, which was dampened a little bit by that patient being on a blood pressure medicine. Paul, Stewart, Chris, anything that you guys, that struck you about this trial?
0: You know, the, the whole thing about the masked hypertension to me makes the most sense. Because if you if the time in your life is when you're the least stressed out is when you're going to go see the doctor that suggests you have an incredibly <laughs> stressful life so to me that just that, that's that's completely makes sense to me
2: yeah and for me it's i i think of the way i feel like we've known for years that mass hypertension uh confers higher risk like i i don't think that's a surprise for me it was nice to see actually some risk, well, not nice, but I'm glad to see that someone that there's some risk attributable to white coat hypertension, which I was never quite sure what to do with before. And I don't think anyone was. We kind of were like, eh, it's probably okay. Maybe it's all right. But I mean, to me, it, it makes sense. If you have such a low reserve for stress, that coming to the doctor's office causes your blood pressure to shoot up, <laughs> then probably it's it's that's going to happen throughout life. So my my suspicion is, yeah, maybe that's the physiology behind it. I it's, I, I would that at- body of knowledge.
0: I always looked at white hypertension as more of a reactive hypertension. So you, you, you probably re- react pretty aggressively to stress. So if you have a relatively stressless life and you overreact to stress, that suggests that you probably need to have a blunted response to that stress. So either through some type of like CBT, maybe even a beta blocker. That's the way that I approach it personally. But I don't even know if that's evidence based. I probably just. Uh, no, I'm going right. to go ahead and say no. Yeah, Yeah, I
1: I didn't see any specific recommendations for what to to do about these results, but I think definitely you should consider treating patients, especially Mm -hmm. if they're kind of on the borderline. If they have white coat hypertension, this suggests a mortality benefit by by treating it.
0: And it didn't matter which med that, that they used.
1: They really looked at just like, was a person on blood pressure med at the start of the study? They didn't kind of follow like, were meds added throughout the course of the study? So it was sort of just like the initial clinic blood pressure reading, the initial 24 hour study, and then they followed them out for mortality. So I don't have all those specifics.
0: That's right. That wasn't a gotcha question. That was more of a trying to figure
3: it out. (laughs) I
0: promise you, it wasn't a gotcha question.
3: That's okay. All right. So, so in the end, does this change any of our practices? I mean, what are our takeaway points from this?
1: Yeah, I, I think it does. I think you you have to take white coat hypertension seriously, mm-hmm. and you should certainly have the suspicion for um for masked hypertension. So, if you see a patient that has uh, LVH, you know you should investigate there. Like if their clinics if their blood pressure is not high in clinic, but you're seeing LVH on their EKG that you got for some who knows what reason, then I think you have to pursue that.
3: Hmm. Stuart, how
0: many hotcakes do you give this? How many do I give it? I think we have to toss that one over to Matt. I'd give this, this, I'd give this
1: at least a medium stack of hotcakes with uh, butter and syrup. Is that, is that a thing?
3: Yes. <laughs> Might lower your blood pressure.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next one.
3: Yeah. So, Stuart, I think you got the next one about blood pressure um, treatment strategies based on cardiovascular risks versus just regular blood pressure monitoring.
0: Yeah. So, this one's a recently published article from... Uh, march of this year is published in um i, I never know what to call this where do, do you call it plus medicine think so. Or? yeah so it, it's an interesting article i don't think it's really practice changing it looks at um treating blood pressure under two different uh strategies either looking at the systolic blood pressure or looking at an internally validated model a weibull model uh, so it's a multivariant analysis model um, and then uh, establishing whether or not the uh, y- they would reduce the uh, number of events avoided higher with the uh, the standard blood pressure, the systolic blood pressure, or the uh, Weibull multivariate analysis model. So it, it it's kind of a fancy way of saying they compared the CVD risk to standard blood pressure. And for the most part, so when we look at a blood pressure target of 140, it wasn't really statistically significant to look at the CVD risk. But anything over that suggested that if you went through if, or if you applied their CVD risk calculator or their, their CVD, risk, CVD risk model um, would have treated less patients to obtain the same number of avoided uh, major adverse cardiac events. So that's essentially what it boils down to. The problems that I have with the study is, number one, I don't even know what model they're using or how they're applying the model. And when they applied the Framingham risk calculator, the one that I typically use in clinic, it wasn't as impressive. So I'm not really sure how this would even apply to my practice, how I would use this Weibull multivariant model in my practice. I just don't understand. Maybe I'm missing something here. Someone help me.
3: Now, Stuart, I have a question. How is this? You now, so they're looking at using cardiovascular risk estimation and then trying to decide like how to control someone's blood pressure. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, with the new ACCHA guidelines, you know, aren't we sort of doing something like that? At least yeah, trying to decide I, in the middle area. Yeah, or, I, I, exactly. We, we've kind of pushed
0: the uh, the goalpost a little bit, I guess, closer up. So w- when we look at patients with a higher CVD risk, we're actually targeting a, blow, a lower blood pressure than was uh, looked at in this study. So instead of the 140 we're looking at 130. So I I, I don't I, I don't think there's there's nothing in here that would change my practice whatsoever.
1: But I I do think what's I do think what's happening that we're seeing and we talked about this on our on our diabetes episode that basically I think what, what treatment's going to look like more in the future is instead of just looking at, like, one number, like blood pressure higher than 140 over 90, we're going to look at a risk score that takes into account multiple factors, which probably does a better job of predicting risk, and then we can sort of, we'll we'll look at agents that are known to lower that risk. And I think, you know, we've, we have that with cholesterol. We might be moving in that direction with diabetes and and maybe with blood pressure, too, because, I, while patients, right. I, I while just, patients I just, like these numbers because it's like you know it's a very like finite. This is your number. I feel like it's just one variable. Whereas this risk score had, you know, had like a bunch of different variables like smoking and diabetes, history of cardiovascular disease, their BMI, and all these other factors. And mm-hmm. they found it was almost like a more efficient way to treat where they you treated less patients but you prevented uh, more cardiovascular disease. by, by
0: this model. Right. So that, that, so when you compared it to a systolic blood pressure of like 150, 150, when you, when you compared it to the 140, it was less impressive. In fact, it, it did not approach statistical significance. And the subgroup. So I I think when you look at a lower blood pressure target, that it, this right now doesn't pan out. Now, ultimately, we'll be able, we'll be able to find out what this, this, you know, wonderful magic bullet calculator is that you're talking about, but we're not there. (laughs) This Weibel model is not it. So that, that's kind of my take home point here. We are not quite there. I, I agree. I just, I think it's aspirational, Stuart. <laughs> it sh- certainly is. Certainly is. I'd
1: like some well, more I, mean, I think
2: it depends on how dogmatic about guidelines you want to be, too. So yeah, the Weibull calculators uh, maybe not be the solution, but I, I I agree with Matt that this is, again, more towards a risk-based, individualized approach than just, I'm going for this target because that's an easy number to remember. Like, I I think this is... I guess more ammunition for more patient-centered care, as opposed to yeah, just absolute yeah. absolutism based on measurements. Because I don't think that's an appropriate way to treat blood pressure.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, certainly. So, how many
1: hotcakes, Stuart? That's the question. Yeah, do let's, you give uh, this even a short stack?
0: I'll, I'll a short I'll, stack. I'll, right, right. I'll give it a drive-through.
3: <laughs> drive-through hotcake.
0: Yeah. Whatever that is.
3: <laughs> all right. So, all right. Let's move on to the next one then. Um, Paul, I think you got you got one that we're discussing the association of repeated measurements of blood pressure in the primary care setting. How sure, long was Chris. that article? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I uh, I took the easy way out. Just chose the absolute shortest article I could go through. Uh, yeah. Actually, and good for you. One that satisfies my uh, my confirmation bias rather than you know actually having to read a lot of statistics. So this worked out great for me. But I I um, I looked at the associated association of repeated measurements with blood pressure control and primary care. It is a uh, a glorious two page research letter uh, to be found in JAMA Internal Medicine.
0: I like how the preview is is one page. It's like literally half of the article.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think Journal Watch the summary actually was longer than the article itself, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> um, but basically, so what what these folks did is they um they set uh, a best practice advisory into the electronic health record, they set up this alert that would go off. So if the initial blood pressure is greater than 140 over 90, it was supposed to alert the practitioner to repeat the blood pressure in the office. And then, and then theoretically they did that. And so they looked at 38,260 patients um, that made 80,864 primary care visits. And at over 30,000 visits, the initial blood pressure is greater than 140 over 90, and so that prompted a repeat. And basically, the the long and the short of it is what they found is that the, the repeat measurement was um, significantly lower than the initial measurement. And so as I think the mean, if I'm not mistaken, was somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 millimeters systolic, um, the repeat measurement being lower than the initial measurement, which, again, this article appealed to me because this is consistent with sort of my own practice where I feel like people are kind of hustled into triage and maybe the blood right. pressure is not taken exactly according to Hoyle, and then maybe I do a, a little bit... Um, I'm trying to think Prostment of a diplomatic legs, way to say this. feeling Yes, yes. <laughs> I talk with my, my sweet, sweet baritone and calm the patients down, and they're sitting there, and I um, <laughs> don't want them talk to me when I'm measuring it because it's a chance for a sweet silence. And so maybe I, I get a little bit lower pressure reading that way. So it's it kind of it's consistent with, with my own practice. So I, like I said, this sort of confirms a bias that I already sort of had. Um, they do mention that this effect is... Even accounting for regression to the mean, so you would expect that a, right. a repeat blood pressure measurement would be closer to the number that you want in any case. But this actually is more than that. So, in terms of whether or not this would change my practice, no, no, no is the short answer. And then in terms, it's like I said, it's two pages. I don't know if I mentioned that this article is two pages. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I, you know, they didn't really delve you just into. Want to read it verbatim? How consistently that they actually that they actually followed through and repeated the blood pressure measurement. I don't. I, I suspect they're. In my own practice, I feel like there's a little bit of confirmation bias. Like, I'll get a blood pressure reading that I like and then stop checking. You know what I mean? Like, if it's higher, yeah. then I won't... I'll just keep checking it until it's a number I like, which is probably not the best way to do it. And I, I don't know if there's any way to to make sure that didn't happen in, in these particular circumstances.
3: Now, now Paul... I- I have, I have a question. So, you know, oh, you our re- the recent sprint trial, which, you know, a lot of our blood pressure guidelines seem to be based off nowadays, you yes. know, they had repeated multiple blood pressure readings and did the average, right? So, and in which way, how does that relate to the, the discussion here on this, with this, this with this uh, article?
2: I don't think I understand your question.
3: No. Oh. <laughs> well, so with the sprint trial, I mean, they, they, they took multiple measurements and, and did the average of the, of those blood pressure ratings, didn't they? And um, so they, you know, basically a lot of our guidelines are based on repeated blood pressure measurements now. So it seems reasonable that you know this is probably what's going to start happening. Hopefully, if this is what going to be standard of care.
2: Sure, except in this case, they only did it for hypertensive patients. So I, yeah, you know, so I'm not sure. Yeah, There's someone a could explain with a normal blood too. pressure so. and
0: then checked it twice and it would have been higher. Right. So if you count, of,
2: yeah. yeah, if you count for regression to the mean and you choose a hypertensive population, probably by definition, most of those patients are going to have elevated blood pressure, at least initially. Uh, well, except unless you're good at treating blood pressure, which apparently I'm not, which I'm <laughs> disclosing now. And then you would expect the second to be a little bit lower. So there's, it's, I feel like there's no surprise here. I, so for me, I would give this, uh, not that you asked, uh, I would give this one delicious hot cake um, <laughs> because I, I think it's interesting. I think it's kind of valid, but it leave me wanting like a lot more. I feel like it's, I, did I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this at the f- at the outset, but this is two pages long. <laughs> um, and so I, I would like to actually know how consistently this was done, how often they repeated the measurements, for whom. I, like, I just, I don't, I wasn't, I didn't get a sense of the internal quality control with this particular study, and I think just by of they didn't have space for it. I so think actually, they said like,
1: actually, yeah. like, 36% of the patients in this study had a repeat blood pressure if it was high on the initial time.
2: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: And so... We, we mentioned regression to the mean a whole bunch of times, so I feel like we should just kind of mention. So it, regression to the mean just sort of talks about patients, in general, patients that get enrolled in studies tend to be sort of outliers that have like right. numbers that are far outside the normal range. And just sort of by chance, if you keep checking blood pressures, those people are going to tend to drift back towards the kind of average. Right. It, you know, and that's what regression to the mean is. So that's what they're saying here. Like, if you happen to check a blood pressure and the first one's high, chances are if you keep checking, it's going to kind of come back towards a more normal uh range or what is the, the average range. So, yeah, Paul, so what do you uh, think, how many hotcakes, uh, one hotcake out of how many? One. Like, how many hotcakes come in a stack? I think we should I don't figure know. this out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Six. Six? Okay. Just, I want to go on the record again. I really feel this is a flawed rating so, system. Based. So I
1: think I think sh- a short stack is three hotcakes and uh <laughs> and and a full stack is six hotcakes. Chris, can we agree on that?
3: Uh I agree. Okay. I, I thought it was gonna be like <laughs> whose line is it anyways. <laughs> All right. I, think, points. I think we beat this uh to death now. Um let's uh so Darn it, I had a question. What? Oh had a question?
0: no, no, it it was it was kind of just a... Uh, um oh oh by the way what do you think blood pressure um checking is going to look like in 10 years in in the in practice like where is it going to look gonna like know? sprint trial you think so yeah
3: so i've been recently um looking into getting new blood pressure um uh, monitors for our clinic and um uh, this really expensive blood pressure monitor from a manufacturer i'm not going to mention basically Mm. does exactly what the sprint trial does you can put it on sprint trial mode you you put the cuff on the on the patient you have them lay their hand on top of the machine you leave the room it'll automatically take the blood pressure um several times um average it and automatically upload it to our emr system and it's super expensive Um, flash some pictures of the we chapel
0: play some tchaikovsky in the background
1: did, and you Chris did a cost benefit analysis, and like we're going to save office visits and we're going to save money on blood pressure you know treatment and all that stuff,
3: right chris actually that that's my Q i project because i'm 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 the one arm with the uh, automatic cuff while another colleague of mine is just using a rolling blood pressure cuff, and we're going to look mm-hmm. at our metrics in a, in a couple of months and see how if at least we can show that I've got better um, uh, metrics than him without actually changing any of our practice oh, all right, so. It's time to wrap it up. Um, Sarah says that we're taking too long. All right. Now that we've discussed our main articles for today, um, we do have a list of a bunch of other articles and news that um, came out recently that we did find interesting. Um, We're not going to talk about all of them on the episode today, but we did pull out a couple quick hot takes that we want to talk about. Um, These are sort of meant to be nugget sized um, and to give our listeners an idea of what's going on in the recent literature. So we have a group of categories of some guideline updates. Um, The first one is from USPSTF about uh, prostate cancer. Do you want to talk about that, Stuart? Um,
0: Sure, if I have to, if I'm forced
3: to. So
0: (laughs) especially with my patients, if I have to and if I'm forced to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, you like that one? I actually so, like that, Stewart. That's good. Great, great. <laughs> yeah. So I think that the biggest thing that I that I liked about the the USPSTF recommendations is actually not what USPSTF said, but what what Vinay Prasad said on on Twitter. I think it's hilarious. So if you just read through his tweets on uh, PSA. PSA screening. There's actually one graph that he that he pulled out. I'm trying I tried to find which article it was from, but actually showed that all cause mortality was actually higher in the, uh, the 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 group that received screening versus the the group that it did not receive screening. To the two, I mean, it's a very small number. So all all cause mortality was like 0.25 per thousand men in a 10 year follow up. So incredibly low. So and also not statistically significant of a p that literally was 0.49. <laughs> so, literally, uh, no no difference. But there is no improvement in mortality either.
3: Yeah, I, I highly encourage our listeners to check out this tutorial from uh Apercent. It's actually really fun to go through, and it's an interesting new way to right. sort of use the media. Yeah, yeah. so
1: just to, to go through the, just a little bit, add a little bit to this, in 2012, there was a D rating, which is pre- pretty much do not screen for PSA. Mm-hmm. But now it was upgraded to a C rating, and that's why this was a news story. PSA screening for men ages 55 Mm -hmm. to 69 years old, there may be a small net benefit, and this is mostly based on the ER SPC trial, which is one of the two. It was a European trial, large trial um, for prostate screening, and it prevented 1.3 deaths per thousand men screen if you followed them for thirteen years. And I think like at ten years, there was no really no difference or no mortality benefit, but then it sort of eked up over that next three years. So uh, they also said that you might if you screen a thousand men, you might prevent three cases of metastatic prostate cancer. I will remind people the uh, so false positives, you know, can cause psychological harm, there's need for right. biopsy. You can also get uh, overdiagnosis and treatment by screening, and the numbers for treatment: if, if a man has a radical prostatectomy, there is a two and three will have, uh, two will three have two and three will have erectile dysfunction, and one in five will have urinary incontinence.
0: You know, one of the things that that I should have looked up before this. Uh... This episode, there was an article that I'd recently read. I know I should have, I should have pulled this one up that looked at the, the, uh, the incidence of depression with a diagnosis of prostate cancer and showed a significant positive correlation. And the thought process was actually just that, that with a diagnosis of prostate cancer, thinking that your life was going to end soon, that depression went up, but so did suicide, um, attempts and ideation.
3: All right. We're going to move on. Our next guideline update was also from USPSTF about intimate partner violence guidance or violence. And um, it's sort of a, a and uh, Paul, you want to talk about that?
2: Sure. It's, it's that it exists. It's kind of the exciting thing. Yep. Um, so there's the USPSTF recommendation for intimate partner violence screening is that it recommends that clinicians screen for intimate partner violence in women of reproductive age. And then should they screen positive, provide or refer women to screen positive to ongoing support services. Um, things to bear in mind is that they don't really specify a screening frequency. They Mm -hmm. don't uh, specify which specific screening tools to use. They do note that um, the screening tools tend to be effective. Um, There's HITS, which most people have heard of. There's also the HARC tool, uh, I'm sorry, the HARC tool, I should say. But there's a number Mm -hmm. of tools that can be used for screening. They don't make a specific recommendation. And then an interesting sort of second recommendation uh, or sort of non-recommendation, for older or vulnerable adults is that the USPSTF concluded that the current evidence is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of screening for abuse and neglect in all older or vulnerable adults. So those who are physically or mentally, quote, dysfunctional, end quote. So they don't have enough evidence to actually comment on whether it's not of um, benefit to screen that pa- particular patient population. That just seems odd. I agree. That,
0: that just seems incredibly odd. I, I've had several patients who I've had to refer for uh, for elder abuse.
3: Now, Paul, these aren't like the final recommendations yet either, right? These are still in, right. these are still the draft, correct?
2: That's exactly right.
3: These and are still I would, in the draft yeah,
1: phase. I, I would just recommend uh, just thinking ahead to listeners, if you are gonna screen for intimate partner violence, before you start doing that, you should have some sort of a plan in case you get a positive screen. So talk to your social worker uh, before you before you do that. And and I think we should move on.
0: Sounds good.
3: All right. So we do look at some of the news that are in the lay media. Um the one of the big ones that came on the last month is that basically people said alcohol is slowly killing you. Now Stuart, you want to talk a little bit more about this one? I think that was Matt's. Oh Matt, did you want to talk about this? Yeah,
1: so this was from April 2018 from the Lancet. The the head author was Angela Wood and this was this was looking at almost 600,000 patients from 83 prospective studies. Oh, yeah. And what I thought was interesting here is that in in the UK, uh, both men and women can drink have eight drinks per week. That's their recommendation. But in the US, for some reason, we only give uh, women can only have seven drinks per week and men can have twice that. So I just you know that's thought sexist. that was interesting, you know, not, not sure what that's about. But basically what this was looking at is all cause mortality. Anyone who was consuming more than 100 grams of alcohol per week, which is about seven drinks, would would have an increase in mortality. And so at age 40 years old, if you're having more than 100 grams per week, they predict that's about a six-month decrease in your life expectancy. Wow. If you're having more than 200 grams per week, that's a one-to-two-year decrease in life expectancy. And if you're having a whopping 350 grams, which by my calculations is roughly 24 drinks, so a case of beer a week, then that's a four-to-five-year decrease in life expectancy. And the younger you are, the bigger decrease in life expectancy. So... So,
0: hundred hundred grams. I just did the calculation. That's, unless I'm completely wrong, that's less than a six pack a week. That's. Well, it's fourteen you know, grams five, per
1: drink. I think something like well, that. Well,
0: so five five percent alcohol. So it's five percent times three hundred fifty five ml. It's seventeen point seven five grams. One hundred divided by seventeen point seven five is five point six <laughs> drinks per week.
1: Yeah. So so don't drink. Uh, don't drink a drink every day. And yeah, the other thing is there was a study earlier this year that we can also link to that cognitive decline seems to be, even for moderate drinkers, cognitive decline seems to be more
3: prevalent when you follow them out, so. All right, time to move on. Sarah's telling me that we need to move on. Uh So um, we have a couple articles talking about DPP-4s. I think this is an interesting one for most of us. I think, Stuart, you you had some um, interesting comments on this one?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is is great because... (laughs) So the, this is an article from uh uh I, I'm I'm sorry I'm I'm thrown off here by reading some of these 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 texts. So this is from Jama. So this is uh it, it it's looking at GLP1 receptor agonists, the DPP4 inhibitors and the SGLT2 inhibitors. I, I so I just I, All right. Cards on the table. I love my GLP1 receptor agonists and I love my SGLT2 inhibitors. I do not necessarily like my DPP4 inhibitors. And this kind of Confirms my concerns. So the DPP-4 inhibitors do not; it, it does not tend towards improvement in any kind of mortality. When you look at the the uh, SGL, SGLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT-2 inhibitors, on the other hand, we have a lot of data that actually suggests that there is a mortality benefit with these medications. And I I wish we were able to look at these medications as formula f- formulary. Um, uh, choices for a lot of our patients because unfortunately I have to, I I don't know about you guys but I've got to jump through several hoops just to get SGLT two inhibitor approved a GLP one receptor agonist is also very difficult but when you look at the actual cost say like for the metformin sitagliptin combination that's very expensive and 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 is on par with some of the GLP one receptor agonists so I don't understand why um, at least with some of the formularies that I work with that these are considered to be uh, more of a first line medication when compared to the SGLP uh, the SGLT two inhibitors and G- GLP one receptor agonists. My gosh, that's a lot of.
3: <laughs> I think. I think. I really do. Do think these formulas are going to change now that once right. uh, people read these trials and it becomes more ex- nor, more um accepted? Yeah. Now, do we want to talk about the second DPP four article? Matt? Yeah,
1: I I just wanted to point out that the the meta analysis Stuart was referencing. They looked at both SGLT two and GLP one right. versus control, which could be. You know, a placebo or just mm-hmm. kind of standard therapy, or versus the DPP the DPP four head to head. <laughs> and so they, th- that was yeah. the
0: association between SGLT two inhibitors, GLP one receptor agonists, DPP four inhibitors with all cause mortality in patients with type two diabetes, published in JAMA, April seventeenth, two thousand
1: eighteen. Bam. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll move on. Okay. The other the other thing that I wanted to just mention about DPP four is this was I believe this was from the BMJ. And this study, I'll I'll tell you, it's not going to be practice changing. I just thought it was interesting. The background here is that uh, low levels of DPP-4 enzyme, which is kind of ubiquitous. It's not just involved in in diabetes uh, or the GLP-1 metabolism, but basically low DPP-4 enzyme has been associated with increased IBD activity. So they looked at this like set of 141,000 patients over 18 years old with diabetes, some of whom had been exposed to uh, DPP-4 inhibitors, and they found that there was actually an increased risk of IBD events. I will say that over 552,000 patient years of follow-up, there was only 208 IBD events, and you know. That's crazy. So to me, this was not really practice changing. It was just interesting. I didn't know about the association of the low enzymes and IBD.
0: What I loved about this is that it was published in the BM Journal. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> All right. Now on to um, a couple articles about life and medicine. The first one is an article that I actually le- recently learned about during a, a Grand Rounds talk that I went to mm-hmm. about the association between teaching status and mortality in U.S. hospitals. I think, Stuart, you read a little bit more about this?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if I read much more than you guys, aside from just scanning a little bit closer. So what I liked about this one is that it kind of... Uh, Confirmed what one of my innate biases is—that is, that, is that uh, mortality at a large teaching center tends towards lower mortality than those at, at a non-teaching facility. And this actually looked at—I mean, the, the amount of data that they looked through is just in, in insane. Twenty-one million total hospitalizations involving four thousand four hundred eighty-three hospitals. That is just bonkers, to use ba- Paul's words. There. That's all I had to say.
3: I think you were saying. You also want to talk a little bit about seasonality. Was there something about that? Yeah, actually, that that was something we were talking about on the pre-recording that I'm
0: I'm not aware. So I went through the study as quickly as I could before we started recording again for a second time. And I didn't see anything about any seasonal variation. I am a little concerned about some of the seasonal variation at some of these teaching centers as you have new trainees that onboard around the June-July timeframe. I think we, we we've always had this kind of uh, concern that that some of these these untrained trainees may be contributing but I, I there's nothing there that that even um suggests that but of course these are also concerns that you could have at non teaching facilities too when you have a new grad who's a uh, who's in in processing so to speak
3: agreed. All right. So the last article from our hot takes uh, category um, is five lifestyle factors that could add more than 10 years to life expectancy. This is from circulation. I like, I like number four. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the five things are number one is healthy diet. Number two is never smoking. Number three is moderate to vigorous physical activity, at least 30 minutes per day. Number four is um, moderate alcohol consumption. That makes no and number sense. Number five is healthy BMI. So, I don't know. Did you guys read it? Did you guys look at this article any any deeper than this?
1: Not, no, not really. I just, I just think that everyone should strive for to to have those five. Probably drinking in moderation. Uh, I'd be interested how they define that. If it was a hundred grams <laughs> a week, or
0: or was it less? <laughs> Chris, how did, how did they define that? Do you know? Um,
3: actually, I have to go back and look.
1: <laughs> the, while you're doing that chris i wanted to i wanted to bring up the nt pro bnp monitoring in patients admitted with acute decompensated heart failure i i was sad that this appears to not work you know i i had uh i i had heard some people do this for their practice where they basically admit a patient check a baseline nt pro bnp diurese the heck out of the patient and then kind of once it gets back to their quote baseline, almost like we do with a dry weight, uh, they they discharge the patient. And it turns out that did not have any sort of benefit for mortality or rehospitalization. And I they looked out to six months. So sad to see that one did not work. Now,
2: Isn't that one of the new recommendations was, though for systolic heart failure? I thought that we covered this. I thought like that was actually discharge.
1: No, I think it's, it's really, I think the recommendation there, and I'd, I'd have to go back and look, was was it, just to check it because it shows that there is a high risk of mortality in patients where that's elevated. And actually, there was another article looking at just BNP over, BNP, not NT, bro. ProBNP, but any elevation in any patient uh, was associated with increased mortality, even right. if the patient didn't have heart failure.
0: Now, th- this was this was to look at NT-proBNP guided therapy during hospitalization. During so this hospitalization, is not, right? So, and, and we we know that there's several conditions that certainly cause a lower than normal nt pro, uh, pro-BNP that could affect. You know, I, I think this this just suggests that at least for clinically decompensated heart failure, you have to follow them clinically, not necessarily follow their NT pro BNP. I don't think that that's practice changing. Did it say anything about checking a, a uh either a BNP or a pro BNP at discharge and, and following that?
1: Oh, that you mean like after discharge? Like no, they at, they just they just followed what they did was they checked a the baseline in the hospitalization uh-huh. and once it had decreased by at least thirty percent. And yeah. they were clinically stable, then they would consider that the endpoint Versus conventional therapy which is just you know, convent, you treat their heart failure when the patient's feeling better, looking better, you discharge.
0: Right. Okay. Okay.
3: All right. Well, I think we've uh, exhausted our time for our hot takes. Um, as you can imagine, there's still lots of still tons of other interesting things that we had read over the last month. Um, you can see the full list of these in our, uh, and links to their discussions in our show notes. Um, and then lastly, I want to plug a, a podcast that I just recently listened to on um, history of medicine called bedside rounds. And I think everyone should check that out if they enjoy the history of medicine.
1: Yeah, and I should probably, I should probably uh, apologize for a, uh, a tweet error where I, I tried to tweet that this is worth a listen. And I think I wrote, this is worse a listen. But uh, <laughs> sorry about that, Adam. Your podcast is great.
3: <laughs> that's right. That's Adam Rodman. So, no, really, if you guys like podcasts like uh, Hardcore History and things like that, but really want to learn about medicine, it's a great, uh, great podcast to check out. So I want to thank all the listeners who reached out to us on Twitter and Facebook for the suggestions for the articles to include in this month's edition of Hot Cakes and Hot Takes. If you're a listener, like the med students over at University of Queensland, Ushner, or have um, something interesting you want us to discuss, please send it our way. Guys, have any other things you want to add before we wrap up?
1: Just that. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yay. You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or get on our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. You can reach out to us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter at thecurbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
0: Chris. Oh, I'm Christopher Chu. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night.
2: And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, and goodbye.
1: <laughs> and before we go, I'd like to thank I'd like to thank our our producer, Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Sarah, I hope you're okay with me saying your middle name. And also our social media team, Beth Garbatelli on Instagram, Hannah Abrams on Twitter, and Chris Chu still on Facebook. That's me. <laughs> All right.